but I do want to make sure that we show up in a way that makes change for the artist and then in turn changes the way that people view the art world. Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. As we all know, 2020 has been a year defined by unprecedented disruptions and challenges. At the same time, in the art world as everywhere else, it has also been a year of spectacular inventiveness by people dedicated to rethinking the status quo and driving positive change. To celebrate these trailblazers, Artnet News just released our inaugural New Innovators list as the cover story of the latest edition of our Intelligence Report magazine. And here, I want to say thanks to Morgan Stanley for sponsoring the Intelligence Report this fall. The list, compiled with the help of dozens of experts in the field, spotlights figures from tech entrepreneurs to enlightened collectors to cutting-edge community builders. One of our innovators who checks all those boxes I just mentioned is Arthur Lewis, an art collector focusing on work by black women artists who also just so happens to run UTA Fine Arts, the division of Hollywood's United Talent Agency devoted to bringing museum-worthy artists to new and bigger audiences. To find out how this works and the possibilities such interchange opens up, I'm pleased to be joined on the podcast today by Arthur Lewis. Thank you very much for coming on The Art Angle, Arthur. I'm really excited to be here. It's kind of nice to do this and have it be the very first podcast I've ever done. Well, it is a a real privilege for us. I think we should call this one the Arthur Angle in your honor. (laughs) (laughs) So you work for United Talent Agency, the Hollywood powerhouse that represents Will Ferrell, Anderson Cooper, Diddy. One that's close to my heart is the Bad Brains, the, the seminal DC punk rockers. You do something a little bit different in terms of the kind of talent that you represent. How would you describe what you do at UTA? I love hearing you rattle off so many names of so many creators. And part of what makes my job so incredibly unique is that I have the privilege of being the art person inside of this beautiful practice. You know, it's a rather unique opportunity for me to not only introduce artists to artists, but also with the artist space, introduce artists, you know, to the world and give them a bigger platform in partnership with uh, either their galleries or other representatives. It's like one of those things where I pinch myself often because I get to go to work and do my hobby every day. Like that's that's kind of amazing. Before we we delve a little bit more into what you do, can you tell us a little bit about the history of UTA Fine Art? How did this very kind of novel and innovative branch of a talent agency come into being? Well, as the brainchild of an incredibly innovative and creative person, Josh Roth, the late Josh Roth, and this was his idea. And the idea was to represent artists through all parts of their practice. So not just them making a visual art masterpiece, which many do, but if there was a movie to be created, book publications, writing opportunities, directing opportunities, just lots of different things because artists have vast interests. So over the course of uh, the years, Josh and uh, the team decided that it would be great to build a platform space where some of those ideas could come to fruition from artists in very different ways. And one of the most amazing things Josh did was create this beautiful presentation for uh, Ai Weiwei that was presented in a number of different spaces around the city of Los Angeles. Um, Sadly, 
uh, the opening of that show in our UTA artist space happened right after the passing of Josh. Hmm. So no surprise, the organization went through a period of uh, mourning and trying to figure out what to do next. And um, I encountered Jeremy Zimmer through a relationship with another agent of UTA, um, Max Doublefield, because of my working relationship with him at Kohl's. <laughs> and I met about two and a half years ago now, uh, which is wild to say that. And I think UTA was still trying to figure out, you know, what was going to happen with this beautiful thing that had been created. And um, they really took their time. And I think what was so extraordinary is, you know, Josh had an incredible eye for art and great relationship with artists. And not only that, amazing relationships with people within the entertainment industry. So it all just happened and came together quite beautifully. And I remember speaking with Jeremy and he asked if I would be interested uh, in taking on this leadership role for this arts thing. And I'm like, okay, that sounds cool. Let's see what happens. So I love being able to end by saying this. It was found by love and by someone who had a really great vision and appreciation for the arts. So it's really quite an honor to walk behind Josh. His vision is really kind of unique in that everybody knows Hollywood agencies are always looking to get involved in the next big business, the next big industry. And the art world has always been very glamorous, but it's also very niche. I mean, painters working in isolation and then debuting their work in a tiny gallery in Zurich and putting on an Instagram what were some of the indications that the art world was something that could be bigger than that? I think the first thing that I uh, saw when I got there was the fact that I knew many of the people who were, you know, talent at the agency and were clients of the agency. What they found value in was shifting and changing. So it's, it's amazing uh, to be alive in this moment where so much pain has borne so much change. <laughs> I'm really excited to, to be part of making that change palatable, something that people can tangibly see and feel and come in and experience art in a way that is, you know, not off-putting. I do not have some long pedigree as a gallerist. I am literally Arthur the Art Collector, who <laughs> happens to be like the leader of this cool art space. So you know, the, the joy of being able to go from one moment of having a conversation with an Academy Award nominated actress about art and how she should view collecting and what that actually means and introducing her to some of the artists that have come through the space and then taking those relationships further and introducing them to some of our gallery partners. I really get to sit in a rather neutral space, which is actually pretty cool and makes us rather unique uh, in the entire art scene because I, I love saying this, we're not a gallery <laughs> and it's kind of the coolest thing in the world. So while we represent artists like Ernie Barnes and the amazing Shireen Nishat, you know, they also have other galleries that have participated in their practice. So we get to do lots more with their businesses and their brands, which is kind of cool. So you had a, an unconventional background for somebody who is this very kind of hybridized gallerist slash agent. Didn't you work at, at The Gap for a little while? I did, not for a little while, for 12 years. I was there for a wow. time. And um, I would say that I've always been a very big fan of art. I fortunately grew up in New Orleans, a city that is so culturally rich that you could walk out your door and experience many different things instantaneously. It's extraordinary. <laughs> but working at Gap was a pivot for me because the Fishers built 
basically a library inside of their office building. And not only that, but it was also this incredible, I wouldn't call it a museum. It was like insane. The things that were in there, Lichtensteins and, you know, beautiful Warhols. Wow. So watching a family use all that they'd created to pour into something like art was really um, a game changer for me. And quietly during all of those years, I was collecting and I didn't realize that that's what I was actually doing. And the next thing you know, there's this big community around you and you're lovingly part of what we call the art world. It's been a wild pleasure, but nothing about working at Gap would have pointed to this opportunity. I was a <laughs> retail guy through and through and <laughs> just sort of loved doing that and love, you know, fashion and love art and love beautiful things and an appreciation for the finer things in life. And so I guess all of those things are a natural culmination to get me here, but definitely not a path that was like destined from the beginning. So the Fishers amasses incredible art collection with Liechtenstein's masterpieces from the post-war era. They gave a lot of it to um, SF MoMA, and it's kind of the the cornerstone of this great museum. But I believe your collecting had a slightly different tack. What was your focus in collecting and how did it kind of evolve over time? You know, I, I go back to the relationship part, uh, Andrew. It was meeting some of these artists who were doing amazing things and then realizing that their practice or, you know, where they were selling and how they were selling didn't match what I saw as talent. Uh, and it wasn't just me recognizing this. I think lots of collectors realize who were introducing me and kind enough to introduce me to these artists, that there wasn't a lot of push or necessarily excitement around some of their practices or they were being, you know, pigeonholed into little boxes like you do this and we can't really increase the prices to this because of whatever various reasons. So my approach was really to sort of be in commune with the artists and get to know them as individuals and get to understand the meaning behind what they were crafting, what they do. And Unfortunately for me, uh, what it meant is that, man, once I was in, I was really in. So just buying as I built the relationships and acquiring new things from them as, as our relationships developed and as their practice developed. And, you know, making sure that once a year I got something new from them. And then to be able to step back and realize that you um, not only did something for your own pleasure, because art does give me great pleasure, but that you were also helping to build and establish a market for someone. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's rather an extraordinary gift to be able to have. And then now at UTA, there are artists that, you know, I've, I've known about for a couple of years that like Ark Manor Niles, you know, uh, we got to do mm-hmm. a show at UTA and now he's with a, a big gallery, the Maupin Gallery, and was with Rachel Upner. It's, it's just sort of incredible how all of it mingles together. Hmm. And if, if I'm correct, I believe that your own collecting really has a focus on women of color. Is that accurate? That is very accurate. That is very intentional. I think as someone who is a big fan of museums and a big fan of you know artistic and cultural events, it quite frankly became exhausting to see the same things over and over again. Hmm. Um, no matter where I went to, I could pick the handful of artists and name them and I was going to see some variation of work from them. And I really wanted to do something very different. And, you know, my partner and I were very smart in a way that we weren't realizing at the time (laughs) and decided, hey, look, this is a part of the world that we know needs support. And let's just go and go deep. 
So building relationships, collecting from predominantly women of color, you know, started with Jenny C. Jones at an auction. And now I probably have a shrine to her in my house, which would totally embarrass her and I. <laughs> um, but it's something I'm really very proud of because I didn't wake up one day and think that that would really be a thing. And I know that there's a large group of collectors who, like me, you know, call it getting there early. Mm-hmm. But, but it was really more about the relationship, being able to get a Christmas card from someone or text that just says, I'm thinking about you and I love you. It tells you that those relationships have transcended beyond just the work. So it, it turned huh. into quite a thing for us, which I'm still very happy about. Your arrival at UTA had incredibly fortuitous timing because you came in last year where there was a lot of growing attention that was being given to Black artists by the the art establishment, by the art market. In part, this was in a reaction to, you know, President Trump's election and, and the idea that, that people needed to do the work to create the future that they wanted and give the opportunities to people that they felt had been denied these opportunities. And then this year, obviously, in the wake of George Floyd's murder, we've seen this Black Lives Matter movement explode. And in tandem with it, the market enthusiasm for Black art has been unbelievable. How do you feel like this period, this year, the protests have shaped your approach to to your job? It's deeply influenced it. It's deeply influenced the programming. Now, I'll go back to a comment someone made to me last year. They said, you're going to UTA, is everything just going to be Black? And I said, would you ever ask a museum director if everything's going to just be white? What what does that actually mean? So I was then in this conversation and trying to stay calm and then heard, well, this hype around the Black art market, you know, this is just the trend. And, you know, I don't think Blackness has ever been a trend. It's been here the whole time. There are a slew of collectors that came before me, like Peggy Cooper Catfords, who were supporting Black artists and Black female artists for decades. So I think it's a moment where the rest of the world has finally turned its lens and its gaze in this direction. And I am personally incredibly excited for so many of these artists who are finally getting their due and coming out of, it seems like nowhere, and then having a covetable market. And um, I think that when all of this settles, this is not gonna look like a trend. This is not gonna look like some moment. It's just going to be a simple recognition um, that we as Black people have existed in this country almost since its founding. And although, you know, we didn't all get here the way that we wanted to, I believe the mark that's being made right now is permanent and beautiful and lasting. And I've got to tell you, in the moment that all of this happened, what that first show looked like was going to be really, uh, I had to really make a mark. I had to really be comfortable with where we were going. And Marianne Ibrahim, I'm a client of hers. Mm-hmm. Um, she was one of the first two calls I made to she and Martise uh, in Baltimore, Maryland, and said, hey, what would you think about doing a show with us? And she said, I think that'd be great. I'd love it to focus on Black male artists and have them tell stories that are not necessarily always depicted. No mm-hmm. anguish, no grief, no sadness, just Black lives being lived with happiness in the everyday, just like we do. That was one of the things I'm most proud of. Those artists are now all, 
I mean, if I see one more write-up on Gerald Gibbs, I'm going to just fall out laughing. It's or Von Spann. It's incredible. <laughs> I think that in years to come, as painful as this year has been, I do believe that this is going to be a really proud turning point. You mentioned Marianne Ibrahim, who's the the incredibly admired Chicago gallerist. She's been thriving these past couple of years. There's been a lot of incredibly positive change, both in the industry and in art as a blanket kind of category. But at the same time, we've seen this thing happen where oftentimes the people who have been profiting the most from this booming market for black art have been white speculative collectors who, who buy up artists and then flip their work at auction for these huge, you know, multiples of what they paid for. And the artist rarely sees the money. How do you think of that issue? You know, I think this starts with the artists, you know, first recognizing that while this is a craft, it's also a business. And one of the things I try to do always in my conversations with artists is just be honest with them about the full spectrum of what happens so that it's not necessarily a personal affront, but more of a, as this happens, what moves are you making so that your practice begins to benefit and then therefore you. So being smart about where things go, and that doesn't mean like doing background checks on every person who comes across to buy your work, but working with partners who are quite familiar with the arts community, being careful about, you know, what price you sell it at and not fluctuating the prices and honestly getting great guidance from not just gallerists, but business advisors and other artists that have come along the way. I think the smartest thing that artists can do is to build that support network through various stages of your career that you can pick up the phone and just call. So while some of it is, you know, completely unsavory, and I I agree with you, I find it interesting when someone buys something one day and then 30 days later, it's gone. At the Mm -hmm. same time, if someone's had something on their wall for five or 10 years and it's moved significantly, Mm -hmm. I understand them wanting to take advantage of a rising market. I do think that network that you build around you can help you. And it's one of the reasons I admire Marianne so much. She's so blunt with not only her collectors, but with her artists, that she sort of keeps us all in line. So when lots of press comes out and lots of articles come out, she's not shy about going, hey, what's going on? Are you happy with your work? You want to keep it? And I appreciate those calls. So I, I love to some degree that the preciousness in which we've existed has completely been shaken up this year. I do think as artists become smarter and more intuitive about what happens in the market and are able to, you know, manage their careers as a brand, um, which is something I'm excited about for many of them, I do believe this will begin to shift a little. You know, the the flip side of this kind of conundrum is uh, something that Sean Green, another one of the innovators in our innovators list and the founder of the gallery management startup Arternal, he kind of pinpointed the problem as being that there's such limited access that black collectors get to artwork from today's dealers. That's a quote. And then he, he goes on to say that, you know, quote, to have all these black art stars mostly in the hands of white collectors is doing a major disservice to the black community. Would you agree with this? And if so, what can be done to diversify not only the art that you show, but also the collectors that uh, you sell to? One of the things I'm watching a lot of artists do now, they're asking questions of where things are being placed. And some of them are going as far as to say, hey, half of this needs to go into collection of black collectors. This network and community has grown more together 
and more synergized. So if I am turned down by a gallery and it still happens or they just ignore my note, um, I simply find someone who has a relationship with the artist and I will buy directly from the artist, but then the artist proceeds on my behalf with their gallery and then I acquire the work. Mm -hmm. So if that's what it takes in order to change this, great. I'm happy to do that. And I think mm -hmm. as artists see and have conversations with, you know, collectors of color, um, those are some of the most intriguing conversations. And I've watched artists say, yes, just reach out to my gallery and a collector go, I've been reaching out for five years. <laughs> so that level of engagement and then having those dialogues together is indeed shifting that dynamic. You mentioned restrictions on sales. One, one artist who made waves about that recently is Lauren Housie, who is an LA artist that you collect, who told her dealer, David Kordansky, that there were certain pieces in her most recent show that he could only sell to collectors of color. How do you choose the artists that you work with and how do you work with them to shape their markets? Yeah, I'll, I'll go back to the Lauren part for one second because I think what gets lost in that, and I'm not speaking on her behalf, but what gets mm -hmm. lost in that is, and this is not about David Kordansky, this is a bigger conversation. If artists didn't do that, then what would happen? Because the traditional role has been, it goes to people who have been long supporters of the gallery. So if they're not engaging with black collectors or other collectors of color, then there is no conduit. So the artist then has to interfere. What I always try to do is work with the artist and their gallery partner. I, that's really very important to me. Um, and if they don't necessarily have a gallery partner to make sure that they're experiencing and getting other counsel. And then we do have deep conversations about where we'd like things to go. So one of the proudest moments I had was with Arc Show in February for Freeze of last year. I'm saying last year, my gosh, that was just this year. Um, <laughs> we worked with getting one of the works acquired for the Hammer um, Museum is just an outright gift. And the only thing he asked me before his show opened is he's like, I'd like to be in the Hammer collection. Being able to do that for an artist is an extraordinary blessing that I don't take for granted. So I won't say that it's not a challenge, but I do wanna make sure that we show up in a way that makes change for the artist, and then in turn changes the way that people view the art world by intersecting it with music, entertainment, and other capacities mm -hmm. and put on a full Hollywood show. Like that's who we are. <laughs> One of the most interesting and exciting intersections that I've been following in the art world recently has been the one with hip hop. One of your first shows was from Swiss Beats's Dean collection, and it was spectacular. Was that was that before my time, but I was there. That was amazing. That was, that was a great show. That wellspring of interest between the music community and the art community is something that you're seeing crop up in Jay-Z's apeshit video in the Louvre, for instance, or Kanye West's collaborations with James Terrell and Arthur Jaffa. You've got Beyonce with Black is King, which is essentially this, you know, filmed art exhibition almost uh, where art is combined with dance. And, and I think you, you actually have a show coming up with an artist whose work was including Black is King, uh, Conrad Eggier, I believe. That is correct. What is going on here? Uh, I love saying this. You know, the secret's out. 
everyone loves art. <laughs> <laughs> so seeing all of these genius creators share their passion with the world really does change the game significantly. That show was a game changer. I think for all of the artists that were in that show that were represented with, you know, Swiss's brilliant collector's eye just made a big difference. And quite honestly, those relationships are deep. The, the calls have been stopped. You know, agents reaching out, hey, I have an artist who's into art. Would you mind talking to them and, and getting on a Zoom with them? I mean, who doesn't want to do that? And being able to provide not only a little bit of art education around people, but also provide introductions to get mm -hmm. excited about projects that they might have that might actually work with the artists. Conrad's a perfect example of all of those intersections sort of really coming together and working with this gallerist, Jessica Silverman, who's uh, like mad genius in the art world, <laughs> being in conversation with Conrad and the body of work that he's produced for this digital show. And, you know, the fact that these icons or art collectors, I've now got young people asking me, hey, like, so how do I do this? It's one of my favorite unsolicited emails to, to get. I think that one of the, the great assets that you can bring to an artist at UTA as a, as a talent agency is that you're able to kind of bring the artist to the delta where the little river of you know the art world meets the mass ocean of the wider culture. Is this something that you are actively working with the artists that you represent to pursue this avenue into the mass audience? Yeah, I think it's happening pretty naturally now too, Andrew. And one of the things I'll bring up is a little sneak peek of something that's coming up for us at UTA. We're doing a show that opens in early October called Emergency on Planet Earth. <laughs> and the title is taken from one of my favorite albums called Emergency on Planet Earth by, by the band Jamiroquai. <laughs> So one of my wish dreams was, well, that'd be so cool to have them participate in this show. Well, guess what? Jamiroquai is participating in the show. Cool. It does not get cooler than this. If I were <laughs> any place else, that would never happen. So being able to cross-pollinate that large fan base that you know JK has built for this incredible band over the past 30 years and introduce that fan base to an artist like Manny Castro, who's a young Cuban artist that lives in LA, or Nathan Wong, who is an artist who lives in San Francisco, and, you know, the great Ai Weiwei. It is, it is a dream job. You know, we, you are obviously based in Hollywood, the capital of the film industry. I know you work with uh, Rashid Johnson, who had his directorial debut last year with Native Son. What is the application for fine artists when it comes to making, you know, feature length movies? You know, what I love is that it's alive and well, and there's so many who are curious about it that we're engaged with currently and talking to them about projects and introducing them to people uh, and agents who can help get things funded or produced. You know, sitting from the art side of things and watching that conversation take place is one of the most magical things in the world because artists are creative in a way that I think if we provide the opportunity for them to not only render the work in a you know solid form, whether it's painting, canvas, structure, whatever, and turn that into something on screen as a piece for the eyes is magic. 
we just uh, announced internally that we're working with Shireen Nishat, who is just <laughs> incredible. Um, and I think we're going to tell the world very soon, but she is someone whose practice has so many incredible dimensions. But what she has on the horizon um, in her ideation is absolutely extraordinary. Again, no other place in the art world could that take place. Where one day I could be sitting and having a conversation with a bunch of collectors about Shireen, having dinner with Shireen, talking about a project with Shireen, and then making sure she's got agents to represent her to move the project forward. What other kinds of projects do you have in the pipeline right now that you're excited about? Well, a year ago, almost to the day, I received a email from the person who is the state representative for Ernie Barnes. And <laughs> I remember staring at my computer and I think I read the email about four or five times because I wasn't really sure what was being asked of me. And they came in and they said, we hear that you're the guy. Still haven't figured out what that means, Andrew. And <laughs> that we'd like to work with you and have UTA be part of this journey with Ernie Barnes. I mean, my God, I'm a 52-year-old black male who grew up watching Good Times. Are you kidding me? It's Ernie <laughs> Barnes. Of course I'm going to say yes. We are getting ready to present a show later this fall uh, that Ernie actually curated. Wow. I am still pinching myself. Like, I, I can't believe that this little black boy from New Orleans gets to do this. Uh, <laughs> Ernie Barnes is a master. And we're going to introduce this story to all of Hollywood. I don't know that it gets better than that. Interesting. I mean, like you, for those who may not have recently tuned into Good Times or who were born born after it, he 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 is this incredibly dynamic African American painter and illustrator who who one of his paintings was shown while the the credits of Good Times played. If I also uh, was used on Marvin Gaye's album cover. So, <laughs> and there is that great intersection between art and music all coming together. And then Ernie was quite famous for painting basketball players. While now that, you know, clutch sports is part of the UTA family, uh, I am having lots of conversations with that team about some of those work. <laughs> so the intersections are just broad and beautiful. If you're a TV producer, TV actress, actor, musician, rapper, basketball player, singer, songwriter, Marvin Gaye fan, you name it. Ernie Barnes was part of that narrative. So making sure that we see things broadly from that spectrum is something that my team and I really do focus on. Yeah, fascinating. I mean, this is a whole new you know, vanguard of what art could be. You guys are doing this. You know, CAA is doing it. WME Endeavor is doing it. But how would you say that the UTA, you know, art division is differentiated in the Hollywood ecosystem? I think the one big separating difference is our project space. I think it's really an opportunity for us to act as another outlet of expression for artists in a way that might not necessarily happen in a gallery or a museum. We truly get to be that hybrid practice space. I think you, not only do you know that there is going to be a difference made, but there are going to be lasting memories. It's like being a child of my generation and going to see the King Cut exhibit. Like, I still remember that. 
So I think of things in those moments. And to be able to have a little kid come in and see some filmmaker whose work they've admired rendered in the form of an art show, it's just really very exciting. It's going to be very exciting to see where you take this thing. Thank you very much for coming on The Art Angle. Well, thank you guys for having me. And thank you for making my first time on a podcast easy. That's it for this week's episode of The Arthur Angle. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Tim Schneider and Caroline Goldstein and edited by Nick Long. Thanks for listening and see you next week.